presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the third in our series on the book of Acts that I've entitled To the Ends of the Earth with the subtitle Proclaiming the Gospel in the First Century. And that's where our emphasis really is, is how the gospel went out and all of the things that were going on. Remember, that was a real time of, uh, of transition, very different from today. Now, obviously, the gospel is the same and the pro- proclamation of the gospel is the same uh, as God is pleased to use uh, our efforts in proclaiming the gospel, the results are the same. That is the new birth. But this was a a tremendously uh, transitional time, particularly in the first half of the book of Acts. For example... Uh, we'll, we'll think of it this way, that Luke's Gospel, uh, Acts is really a sequel to Luke's Gospel. It's a bridge between the Gospels and particularly the New Testament epistles that are written by the Apostle Paul. Because remember, it, uh, our, uh, our study begins at the time of the, our Lord's Ascension, and then uh, ten days later came Pentecost, and we talked about that, and we talked about the witness in Jerusalem, but then uh, the rest of the the rest of the book of Acts uh, goes right up to the time of Paul's first imprisonment. So there are some of the uh, uh, of the epistles that are not included, the general epistles that are not included so much in the uh, in the book of Acts. But it's easy to plug in Paul's writing into the book of Acts. So remember that it is a uh, it is sort of a a bridge between the uh, between Luke's gospel and between particularly the writings of Paul in the uh, in the New Testament it it really describes the first 30 years or so from around AD 32 uh, up until about 62 uh, after Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, and remember, the Old, the Old Testament had, had promised this in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31. Remember, Jeremiah had said this, or God said this through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. That's the old Mosaic covenant. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here God is promising in the Old Testament that there was a new covenant that would come. The Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone. And... uh, The new covenant would be written in the minds and in the hearts, 
there would be uh, under the new covenant there would be a desire that God would give a willingness that God would give to uh, to seek to obey him uh, the, the one of the purposes of the law was just to show our sinfulness and to drive us to the Savior and 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 beg for God's mercy because we couldn't live up to the standards that uh, that he provides and and that he requires and of course God has provided for all of that in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection uh, in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 uh, the writer says by calling this covenant new he has made the first one that is the old Mosaic covenant says he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear and of course that's what happened we think that probably Hebrews was written around 67 or 68 AD and whenever the author says here that uh, it's obsolete. That is, it's it's been uh, superseded now by the new covenant. Uh, it says, and will soon disappear. <clears throat> Two years later, it did in AD seventy, when. Uh, Titus, uh, the the Roman general, came in and uh, just laid waste to uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And of course, having destroyed the temple, there's no more place uh, for the Jews to sacrifice. Uh, and and of course there is no more sacrifice because Christ Himself is the final sacrifice. It's interesting also in terms of this whole idea of uh, of, uh, of transition that uh, in the early chapters you there's a real focus on almost Jewish exclusivity. Uh, you see that at the day of Pentecost. What you have is a bunch of, of Jews from all over the then known world who had come to Jerusalem as was required of males to do and they were there to worship the Lord and uh, to experience Pentecost. And <clears throat> You don't you don't really see any record of any of anything happening with the Gentiles, whereas as you go along through the Book of Acts, you see more and more that uh, that there's a Gentile inclusivity that begins to take place, um, and of course it takes tribulation and persecution for that to happen. It's like the second law of thermodynamics: uh, God turned up the heat, and uh, through persecution, and you got expansion. And because remember the uh, uh, the great commission was to take the gospel uh, first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, which is the province in which Jerusalem was located, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the world, to the ends of the earth. In fact, that's where the, the title came from for our study. Uh, there's also a transition from a uh, a national and political emphasis on Israel to an international emphasis on the church and the uh, the body of Christ. Uh, notice in Acts chapter in Acts chapter one verses six and following, and this was just prior to the ascension. It says, "So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" Notice that they're thinking political. They're thinking uh, in 
terms of nationalistic ideas. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's a there's a shift in emphasis. Does that mean that God is through with Israel? Uh, based on Romans 9, 10, and 11, I would say that's not the case. Uh, I think God has got something special planned. But, but the emphasis as you look through the book of Acts moves from a Jewish exclusiveness uh, to a uh, more of a Jew-Gentile inclusiveness. So I think that's just another... Uh, again, that's a real mark of, uh, of transition in, in the book. Uh, there's a reluctance that that we have seen uh, on the part of Jewish believers to expand beyond, as it were, their own kind. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, what God did was He uh, persecution came to the church and as a result of that, they did expand. They were perfectly happy just ministering to one another there in Jerusalem and even in Judea uh, to some extent because that's mostly Jews. But then it took persecution, and we'll see that today, to move them into uh, into Samaria and, uh, and ultimately into to uh, Asia Minor and to Europe, which was in, in that day the, the ends of the earth. So uh, I, I say all that just so that you'll realize that some of the things that we read about in the book of Acts are transitional kinds of things. Uh, for example, the... Uh, uh, one of the things that you read about in Acts chapter 4 is the voluntary uh, giving up of everything and living uh, communally. Well, is that, uh, is that something, is that the norm? Uh, is that something, and you don't see that as the book of Acts progresses. It was something that was occurring there in the very early days, but you don't see that same thing uh, near the end of the book of Acts as you read the epistles of Paul that fit into that uh, that time frame. Uh, furthermore, uh, I think another, and I don't want to get into this to any extent, but it clearly is there, and that is uh, another illustration of transition has to do with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, we saw that there were 120 people in the upper room, and uh, the Holy Spirit was given after they believed. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and they were speaking in languages that they had never learned. Then when you get to chapter 8, you see a situation in which the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit after they believed. But it only happened when the apostles laid their hands on them, when Peter and John laid their hands on them. Now, now what's that all about? Well, remember, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, the Jews and, yeah, the Gentiles, which Samaritans would be part of the Gentiles, were always at odds with each other, particularly the, the Jews just didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans in particular. 
And so what was God doing? God was showing in this transitional period that the same thing, the the same salvation that the Samaritans received was exactly the same thing that the Jews had received on the day of Pentecost. Uh, You see a similar thing as the gospel goes out uh, to Gentiles, uh, and I think a prime example of that is to Cornelius in chapter 10, where the giving of the Holy Spirit was not after that, they believed, but it was while Peter was preaching. He didn't even get a chance to finish his sermon. We'll, we'll see this in, a, in, a, in a, some subsequent studies. But the Holy Spirit just fell on them. And they had the same phenomena that happened at the, uh, at the time that, uh, uh, like on the day of Pentecost. There was this speaking in unknown languages. Now, now, why was that happening? Well, again, the Bible tells us that the Jews demand a sign. And what God was doing was He He was giving them a sign. He said, look, these Gentiles are getting exactly the same thing that you people, uh, formerly of the Old Covenant, were getting. So that's that's the reason for that. Uh, I think the final time was around Acts chapter 19 when there were some uh, about, uh, I think about 10 or 12 Messianic Jews. They they believed that that there was a... uh, Messiah who was coming, they had been uh, followers of John the Baptizer, and uh, they received the Spirit after they believed. Uh, remember, Paul would ask him, "Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed, uh, or have you received?" No, that's the way the King James says it. The uh, the accurate translation and all the newer translations uh, say it this way. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they responded, hey, we didn't even know anything about the Holy Spirit. Well, what were you baptized in? Well, we were baptized um, according to John's baptism, which of course was a baptism of repentance. And Paul laid his hands on them and they had the same phenomena. Now, but these are isolated instances, but what you see is it's a transitional kind of thing. And in each one of the cases, there were Jews present so that they recognized that this phenomena that was happening among the Samaritans, among uh, the folks at uh, Cornelius' house, uh, among these uh, Jews that had been following John the Baptizer and recognized that Messiah was coming, but that's all they knew. That what they had received was exactly the same thing that the Jews had received on the day of Pentecost. And the whole idea was so that there would be less enmity. In other words, we're not going to have class warfare here. I'm, I'm better off than you are because I've had this experience and you have not had this experience. But you, you see this thing sort of waning as, as you pr- make your way through the book of Acts. In other words, it's more prevalent in, say, the first old 10, 11 chapters of the book of Acts. And then when you get to the second half of the book of Acts, you, it, only, it only occurs once. So, uh, again, and I didn't mean to belabor all of that. I, I think it is interesting, too, and I will say this, that in none of the situations, whether on Pentecost or whether among the Samaritans where uh, Peter and John came and laid their hands on them, or at Cornelius' house where Peter was preaching, or among those Messianic Jews that uh, that were dedicated to John the Baptizer, in not one of those cases was the Holy Spirit sought. 
nobody sought the Holy Spirit. So you could ask yourself, well, which one of these situations is really is really normative? Uh, what each of these situations has in common is in every one of these situations there were Jews present at the time and the Jews needed a sign so it would prove to them that what these Gentiles had was exactly the same thing that God had given to them. It, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 and following, it says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So again, I hope that you are doing your reading uh, because <clears throat> you'll, you'll really get a, a flavor for what the book of Acts is all about. But our focus in our study is to... Uh, is primarily on the moving of the gospel itself. There are a lot of interesting little stories that, that go along with this, and I don't want you to miss those. But if we were going to talk about all of those things to any extent, we would certainly have to extend our uh, study of the book of Acts. Today we're talking about the witness in Judea and Samaria. Uh, you should have a map, and you should uh, have... Um, a set of notes there, and we're finally going to get to that. Uh, some of you thought probably we never we never would. Uh, the time is about uh, A.D. 32, uh, and we're looking at Acts chapter 8, and it says, uh, "And there arose on that day, and that day refers to the uh, to what has just taken place, and that's the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember, he's he's the church's first martyr. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria." except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Notice what, what happens is they're, they're not real excited about going out and sharing the Gospel with Gentiles. And so what does God do? God stirs up persecution, and because of that persecution, the, uh, the Word begins to uh, go out. Now people are scattered, and as they're scattered, they're taking the Gospel with them. And now the focus is on one individual named Philip. And we pick up that story in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now the signs that he did had to do with healing, uh, with deliverance from evil spirits. I mean, God was really pouring out His power because what God was doing was showing that that he was powerful. These Gentiles didn't know anything about the gospel at all. They didn't have the advantage of uh, the Old Testament scriptures to any real extent. And uh, so here's uh, here's 
Philip doing all of this. Remember, this is the story where uh, where Simon Magus is uh, is is introduced. He was a, a, a Gnostic heretic, and uh, it says now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. All right, that means that you know Philip was preaching and folks were being saved. They were they were they loved it. They this is great. They sent them they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So notice now these people are believers. They believed what Philip said. They uh, had been converted. Uh, they had even been baptized in water. And yet, it says the Spirit of God had not fallen on any of them. Now, now again, remember, this is a transitional period. Why, why was that? Well, they sent the apostles, two of the apostles, Peter and John, down there. And what was the purpose in sending them? So that they would identify themselves with those folks in Samaria with believers in Samaria and when they did uh, notice uh, notice what happens it said that there's a there's an evidence that uh, that apparently took place it doesn't tell us what that evidence was but there was some sort of evidence that the Holy Spirit had had fallen and uh, on on these believers and in fact that was where Simon Magus got in trouble because when he when he saw that this was happening he thought he said hey uh, what would you guys take to give me the power to be do something like that and of course Peter straightened Simon Magus out right away but anyway in verse 25 it says now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans notice Peter and John were convinced that what the Samaritans had received was the same thing that they had gotten on the day of Pentecost that is in terms of the Spirit of God falling on them now notice what what Luke does not tell us here he doesn't say that as they went about uh, to all these villages that the same thing happened in all these other villages. Now, it may have, but I think if it had, Luke probably would have mentioned that. But the point is, is that this, this was to demonstrate to the home office back in Jerusalem, the, the Peter and John, and to the other apostles, uh, particularly James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, that what these Samaritans had received was exactly the same thing that the, that the Jews had received. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. All right, so this guy is uh, is Jewish. Could be possibly a proselyte, but a Jewish proselyte. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Probably one of one of those uh, one of those feast days, I'm sure. And uh, it says, uh, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So there he is. He's taking a little break from uh, from all the shaking of uh, riding back in the chariot. And he he's uh, seated in his chariot and uh, and reading. 
And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked him, Do you understand what you're reading? Now, notice this. A couple of things. First of all, you, you may ask a question. Well, now, the angel, this angel, this unidentified angel, told Philip to, to go this way and do this. Why, did, why didn't the angel preach the gospel to this Ethiopian treasurer? Well, the gospel has not been committed to them. The gospel has been committed to us, to the church. And we are to proclaim the gospel to uh, every creature throughout the earth. So it's not their responsibility to preach the gospel. Uh, but notice when when Philip asked this uh, Ethiopian treasurer, said, do you understand what you're reading? Notice in his witness what he did was he started where they were. He, he didn't say, who were you there on the day of Pentecost when all those folks were speaking in tongues down there? Wasn't that really something? He didn't start there. He started, you know, that, that would be an interesting thing to talk about because obviously... Peter explained that, and we talked about that uh, in our study on the witness in Jerusalem. But he started where Philip was. Philip was reading Isaiah, and so he says, Hey, do you understand what it is that you're reading? And he said, Well, how can I unless someone guides me? Notice one of the things that the Spirit of God does. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And one of the things that He will do is He will guide you into all truth. Well, uh, he's noticed. Well, let's just keep reading. How can I? How can I understand this unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, and this is from Isaiah chapter fifty-three. It says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Alright, so that's what he's reading. How do I understand this? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this Scripture. Notice, he started where he was. Boy, and this was a great place to start too in Isaiah 53. He Beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And then, of course, as a result of that, the guy believed. There's, there's no talk of any sort of uh, unusual, miraculous kind of evidence or anything at this place. Again, uh, what you see is uh, he was baptized in water. This was an open identification, obviously, with Christ. And then as soon as that's done, it says the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Eventually, we'll see this much later in our study, but uh, eventually uh, Philip took up residence uh, there in Caesarea. It was a uh, it was a, a city, a port city right there on the Mediterranean. In fact, if you look at your map, you can uh, you can see that it was uh, it was up in the area of Samaria. It was a place. Uh, there was a Roman garrison there, and it was uh, it was a place where essentially the uh, procurator or the Roman governor. Uh, 
had his uh, had his main office. <clears throat> All right. Now, notice what happens uh, in uh, uh, beginning in chapter ten. Now, uh, the reason we're skipping chapter nine is because that has to do with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and we're going to pick that study up uh, that story up next week, and then we'll just transition right into the uh, uh, the the travels of Paul eventually. Okay. Now, uh, again, what we see here in Acts chapter 10, um, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now notice what it says about this. Now this obviously is a Gentile. And he's a Roman soldier. He's a centurion, so that means he was over uh, over a hundred soldiers. There were, uh, uh, and it says he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Uh, cohort was made up of three hundred to six hundred soldiers. So he was in charge of a hundred of those soldiers. Uh, uh, just uh, for your trivia. Uh, it, Ten cohorts makes up a legion. All right. So, but notice, notice what it's not what it says about Cornelius. Notice the adjectives. It says he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Notice those four things. Isn't, isn't that amazing? I mean, gee whiz, just. Think about that. This this sounds like the perfect uh, the perfect person to, uh, to have as a member of the church. Here's some a devout person. He fears God. He gives alms generously, and he prays continually. This this sounds like the the perfect believer. Well, he had a lot of things going for him, and he was doing a lot of the right things, but there was something missing from this guy's life. It says about the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror. Now, this is a Roman soldier who's terrorized, so I'm I'm telling you what, the appearance of angels must be really something to see. Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. Now again, we ask the question, Why didn't this angel just... Tell Cornelius what he needed to know, what was missing in his life. Again, the gospel is not committed to angels. It's committed to human beings. And of course, the human being that he is going to send to is none other than Simon Peter. Simon, Incidentally, Simon Peter is living with a tanner right now. Do you know how you, you know what a tanner is? That's a person who, uh, who treats animal skin so you can use them for tents or vests or whatever you want to use them for. But that means you're around dead animals all the time. It means there's a real stench all the time. So Peter uh, was, God was working in Peter's life at this same time because that's not the kind of place where normally Peter would have stayed. So he says, he says, uh, bring one Simon who's called Peter. 
Now, let's keep reading. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city. So, so what's happened is uh, the uh, Cornelius the centurion has dispatched some of his faithful men uh, to go to, uh, to Joppa to, to solicit Simon Peter to come back to Cornelius' home. <clears throat> the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour. So that's noon. Uh, and he went up there to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. Well, that's normal. It's lunchtime. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten any thing that's common or unclean. In other words, he's saying, I've always kept kosher. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. Well, you know, if, if, if a vision uh, is really something, but if you have the same vision three times, say, you know, maybe God is trying to tell me something. And while Peter, verse 19 says, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, now pondering, so he's perplexed, he's trying to figure it out. He says, uh, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. Now, uh, isn't it interesting that uh, that what we just read uh, tells us that Cornelius sent them, but in this uh, in this vision, uh, the Spirit says, uh, "I have sent them." So, see, God is at work here. God is doing something very special at this point. Now, why would why would Peter have a vision about food? Well, obviously it was lunchtime, so he was hungry. Uh, kosher was a problem between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles would eat anything. Well, just kill it, skin it, and eat it. Uh, but Jews wouldn't do that, particularly uh, Orthodox type Jews. Uh, remember that one of the things that Jesus had said, He said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what uh, comes out of him. Now, not only did Cornelius need to hear the words of the, the, the gospel, but notice Peter it needs some preparation himself. Now, he and John had already preached in Samaria and had laid their hands on those Samaritans and miraculous things had happened. But Peter also, we don't know exactly how old he is at this point, but but we do know that, you know, Peter's like any of the rest of us, and that is he was just entrenched in customs and traditions. That's one of the reasons that, he's, that he said, no, I'm not going to eat anything like that. I've never eaten anything like that. Remember, at the crucifixion, one of the things that Matthew describes that happened was that the veil in the temple, that huge thick veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Remember the holy of holies was that inner sanctum where only the high priest could go in and only once a year and that was on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But what happened to that veil, that 
four to six inch thick veil that was between those places. When Christ died on the cross, remember that veil was split from the top to the bottom. And that's uh, that's symbolic. It's a picture that what God is saying is now the way into the Holy of Holies, now the way into my presence is open to anyone who wishes to come as long as they come via the way of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us access. That's the reason we read in the book of Hebrews, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now notice, uh, Peter didn't know why these three guys were coming. He had no clue. When God gave him this vision, he didn't say, now here's here's what you're going to do and here's what I want you to explain to the people. Here's the reason that they're coming. So don't... All he told him said, the three guys that are coming, you go with them without any kind of hesitation at all. Uh, Yes, Lord. See, Peter didn't have all the facts. This uh, this says a lot uh, about guidance. Now, Peter's going to know the, know the facts and know why he's there once he gets there, but he doesn't know them at this point. And this says a lot about guidance. See, we we like the halogen beam, so you can see, a, you know, uh, several football fields down the road on a dark night. But the Bible says that His Word is a light, is a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. Uh, you don't, you know, with a with a Coleman lantern, you don't get to see hundreds of yards down the road. All you can, see, you, you know, you, you've got a little light out here in front of you and around you. You can see where your next footfall is so that you can make the next step. And as you take that step, what happens? That light moves ahead of you and you can see where to put the next step and the next step and the next step. That's very often the way God's guidance is. It's sort of on a need-to-know basis and certainly it was for Peter here. It says, uh, so, so Peter, they, you know, they knock on the door and Peter says, hey, I was expecting you and let's, let's head out. I don't know whether he got his lunch or not. But it says, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, that is a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now when did God show him that? Well, God had shown him that uh, in terms of... uh, when Peter and he and John went to uh, to the Samaritans and laid their hands on them, but more recently in this vision, don't you call common what I have called clean? And God was uh, was saying, I'm going to clean up the Gentiles, and they're just as clean as as a, as a saved Jew is. 
You yourselves know... Well, we read that. So, verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? Why why am I here? Notice, he's still in the dark as to what his what his task is going to be. What is it that you guys want? Why am I here? You know, you would think that Peter would say, hot dog, here's a chance to preach the Gospel to some Gentiles. Man, they got a house full here. And this guy's a Roman centurion. Man, if, if God were to work in his life, he might take this thing back to Rome. But that doesn't seem to have occurred. Or maybe Peter just wasn't thinking that far ahead. What is it that, why, why did you send for me? Why, why am I here? God told me to come, but He didn't tell me why to come. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at at the ninth hour, three o'clock, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and he tells him the, the the story about the angel angelic visitation. Verse thirty-three. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded. Uh, <clears throat> to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Notice now. Peter recognized what his purpose is. His purpose is to preach the gospel here at at Cornelius' home. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Now notice, when when he talks about nation, you're talking about Gentiles. In every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Well, wait a minute now. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Is is Peter off base here? Is is he is he about to preach salvation by works? Is salvation by works? Of course not. Um, read Romans three. Um, clearly, it's not. Um, it says uh, there's uh, in Romans three eighteen. There's no one who fears God, and yet we just read a little while ago that Cornelius was a God fearing man. You see, that points to the fact that God was doing a work in Cornelius' life, the effectual call of the Spirit of God. He wasn't saved yet, but God obviously was working in his life, bringing him to this point. But what is it that he needs? He needs to hear the Gospel, and he needs to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, uh, so he's... he's, uh, uh, in fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he talks about there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says in, in chapter 10 of Romans, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a bond, a slave, or a freeman, uh, regardless of your racial, ethnic, gender, socioeconomic differences, all of us are in the same position. That is, we're guilty and we all have the same need. That is, to be forgiven for our sin and we all require the same remedy and that remedy is only one thing and that is belief in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His uh, substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross for His people. So, 
That's what he's saying here. What it, what is what is right? What is acceptable? I'll tell you what's right and acceptable to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, they asked Jesus that one day. What works must we do? He said, "This is the work of God to believe on Him whom the Father has sent. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ." He goes on to say, verse 39, "...and we are witnesses of all that He, Jesus, did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised Him on the third day and made Him to appear." Notice, here's the Gospel. He died... Three days later, he was resurrected from the dead, and as a result, uh, a a whole lot of us saw him, so we know that it's the truth. He says, He made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, notice, he hadn't, he hadn't gotten through with his sermon. He hadn't given any kind of altar call. He hadn't done any of that. I mean, he's just, he is, he's letting it rip, apparently, as far as his preaching is concerned. It says, while he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter. Now, who who were the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter? That's other Jews. Alright, so Peter was wise enough to bring some Jewish guys with him because he's going to this Gentile's house. Now, and the only reason he's going is because he had this vision from the Lord that said, you, you've got to do this because normally he would not darken the door of any Gentile. But he says, and the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed. Amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. Notice what's the next word? Even on the Gentiles. It was just incredible to the Jews that that could have happened. But see, what is it that the Jews require? They require a sign. And this was proof to the Jews that these Gentiles Gentiles, even Romans, when they were saved, they were being saved exactly the same way that the Jews had been saved on the day of Pentecost and all days subsequent to that. Why was it that the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles? For they were hearing them speaking in tongues. That's the reason for the miraculous sign. So that these Jews would recognize that what these Gentiles were getting... You said, well, maybe since the Samaritans have a little bit of a Jewish background, maybe that's why God's saving them. But there's no way God's going to save a Gentile. Good grief, no way. And yet God says, oh yeah, I've got folks everywhere that I'm going to bring to Myself. So the, Jew, the Gentiles are experiencing the same thing that the Jews did at Pentecost. So Jews and Gentiles are on the exact same footing before God. 
We're all guilty. We all have the same need. And we all have the same, require the same remedy. There's no difference. It says, uh, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And apparently um, he did. Alright, so... And this introduces something that we're going to talk about uh, to a larger extent in the in the ministry of Paul as we go along, because this is where we learn that there are people whom Paul referred to as Judaizers. They were they were Jewish believers. Uh, remember this: that as a result of uh, a Pentecost, a great and we'll see this later, a great number of Levitical priests had come to know the Lord. But remember, they're steeped in old covenant traditions and old covenant customs. And it's just it's hard to get away from that. And so these Judaizers were people, uh, they were Jewish, they were believers in the Lord Jesus, but they would come along, uh, particularly in the ministry of Paul, they would follow him wherever he went, and they would essentially say this. They said, well, now, now Paul had some really good things to say. And Paul is right. The only way that you can be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in Him. But remember this, that Jesus was a Jew. So if you really want to become a believer in Christ, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to become a Jew in order to become a a believer in Christ. That means you guys, you Gentile guys, you've got to be circumcised. All of you have got to start keeping kosher. You've got to start keeping all these uh, special days. See, that was that was anathema to Paul. There was a clean break. The old, again, we go back to that passage in uh, in Hebrews chapter eight that we looked at right at the beginning of our study. That uh, the the old was had, was becoming obsolete and was aging and was getting ready to pass away. And uh, they were going to. That's the reason Jesus talked about that thing. Remember one of the one of the uh, parables that he told. He said, "You don't take." new wine and put it in old skins because if you do what happens is that new wine is going to burst those skins you lose the wine and you lose the skin so new wine has to be put in new skins this is a new thing that God was doing. But notice what happens. Uh, so essentially, and, and let me make one other point, and essentially what the Judaizers were saying, what their mindset was this, that it is possible for a Gentile to be saved, but they first have to convert to Judaism and be circumcised, obviously if they're guys, in order to become a believer in Christ. So essentially they were saying, Yes, uh, there is a real difference between them and us. We're on the inside track and they are not. Now notice what happens in Acts chapter 11 because this really uh, ties in with what we've just been reading. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Alright, so that's at Cornelius' house. 
not only in Samaria, but uh, in, at Cornelius' house in particular, a Roman soldier. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Circumcision party are these Judaizers. That was what I was telling you about. They criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them. He told them about the vision that he had, about the guys coming, about going with them and getting there to Cornelius. I mean, he just he told the whole the the story is just retold there. Uh, verse four. Peter began and explained it to them, and notice what he says. And this this was a smart uh, strategy on the part of Peter uh, when he took those uh, Jewish brothers of his brothers and Christ with him to Cornelius' house. He said, These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And then he talked about, again, what what goes on there. Verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. It was just like Pentecost all over again, guys. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Notice this is a sovereign act of God. Well, I'll be dogged. God is gonna God's gonna save Gentiles after all. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And notice their response. First of all, they glorified God. I'm glad they did. That's a good thing saying. But notice what they said. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice, it was, they were incredulous. God has also granted to the Gentiles. Now, why was it a surprise? Because in the Old Testament... God had already said He was going to save some Gentiles. And we know that from the book of Revelation, uh, of course it had not been written at this time, but there are people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation that God is going to save. Some out of, uh, out of all of those. But, but what's the point here? <clears throat> the point here is when they say, then to Gentiles also... And remember, this is the this is the, these are the Judaizers. This is the party of the circumcision. Doesn't sound like a party I'd want to go to, but uh, that's what they call themselves. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now again, the point they're making is that wow, that means that salvation really is possible. But see, that's going to. But the means to that salvation is going to be an issue for the rest of the book of Acts, and we'll see more about that when we get to our sixth session when we talk about the Jerusalem Council, because that should have been all settled then, but it was not. Well, what what uh, what? Uh, Conclusions can we draw? What applications can we make? I point you to uh, Roman numeral 5 in your notes, the conclusion. First of all, notice that the gospel of God's grace in Christ alone is to be proclaimed to everyone everywhere. Now, there may be, we may use different methods. Sometimes there's mass evangelism like uh, Billy Graham crusades and stuff like that. Other times it may be through a personal testimony, a one on 
one-on-one situation like with when Philip with that uh, Ethiopian treasurer. That's the reason the Bible says always be ready to give a reason to the to the person who asks you for the uh, reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and and kindness. Conversion experiences may differ. Uh, not everybody has a uh, has a Damascus Road experience. But I'll tell you what, the message is always the same. It's always tied into the death and subsequent resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are to trust in Christ. We are to trust in Christ and His finished work. It's the only way to receive God's forgiveness. Uh, Careful observance of religious rites or duties is insufficient for salvation. Think about Cornelius. He was moral. He was pious. He was generous. He was praying. But none of those were enough. In fact, they didn't count for anything. They'd come up as a memorial before the Lord. But they didn't save him. And he was he was doing so much better than than his Roman peers, I'm sure. But careful observance of all kinds of religious rites or duties will not save any of us. Notice what it says in Titus chapter three. Paul would write this later. He, God, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, see, God shows no favoritism in His church. He accepts without distinction all who trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, doesn't matter what is your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your social or economic status. All of us are in the same position. We're guilty before God. We all have the same need, and that's to be forgiven for our sin. And we all require the same remedy, and that remedy is singular. And that's Christ's sacrificial uh, substitutionary death on our behalf. And then uh, part C there in the conclusion, not all opposition to the truth of the gospel of grace comes from unbelievers. It's not just unbelievers who will give you a hard time and give me a hard time. Sometimes it's folks uh, who also uh, are believers, but... They're just so steeped in their old ways that it's like abandoning their heritage. And that's what it was for these many of these Judaizers. And some people use their own experiences as a litmus test for others. They insist that any kind of variation from uh, the experience that they had makes any experience that you've had questionable because you know this this is the way God does it no God does it any way he wants to do it the key issue is am I trusting in Christ do I believe that Christ is God in human flesh do I believe that his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection is all that I need to be saved, to trust in that, that He dealt with the sin problem, that when He cried out from the cross, it is finished, that it was finished. And if I trust in that, I don't need to worry about the future. 
See, God sovereignly is at work. He's bringing His own to Himself. He brought His own to Himself there in Jerusalem. He brought His own to Himself in Samaria. He, uh, some of them a lot at a time as, as Philip did his uh, massive preaching. Uh, but then there was a time when it was one-on-one with Philip. But every time God is bringing His own to Himself. We don't know who they are. We don't know who these people are. Our responsibility is to go and to tell everyone. And as we tell everyone, God will bring His own to Himself. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy that He shows us in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.